This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Do you get the quality sleep you need? Mattress Firm will find you the right bed for your best rest with their wide selection of quality mattresses at every price. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale. Sleep at night. Hello, hello. I'm Brittany Luce, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, a show about what's going on in culture and why it doesn't happen by accident. In the words of Carrie Bradshaw, and just like that, it's the holidays all over again. Many of us are making those winter journeys to see friends and loved ones. So today, I'm getting into a topic that has given me multiple headaches over the past 20 years. And I'm not even a headache girl. We're talking about flying. I hate flying. Not actually being on the plane so much. I actually am somebody who gets a good little nap in when I'm on a flight. But I just have a miserable time at the airport. I even have an actual enemy who works at the TSA line at JFK. And I'm not the only one with bad feelings. But it wasn't always this way. You dressed in your Sunday best. You know, the seats were lovely. The food was great. You know, they'd roll down the aisle with the roast beef on a cart and carve your dinner right in front of you. You had the beautiful silverware and the plates, and it was just all very civilized. That's Benet Wilson, former senior editor for The Points Guy and aviation journalist with over 25 years under her belt reporting on the consumer experience with airlines. She's joining us to break down how we consumers ended up grounded in airline hell and why we may not be taking off anytime soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching, so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox. Discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, which believes plants and gardening are for everyone. With over 25 years of developing, trialing, and testing some of the most recognized flowering shrubs and evergreens on the market, Proven Winners Color Choice makes it easy to transform dull landscapes into colorful, vital spaces for work and play. Available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide. Or learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. Benet, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you. I am so excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. How would you characterize the state of air travel today, if we're zooming out on the timeline? The state of air travel right now is still in flux. I mean, people, for the most part, are getting from point A to point B, but it's not as smooth as it was before the pandemic. The airlines are still trying to catch up. People are still trying to adjust to a post-COVID industry. And it's going to take a while to get through that. 
In what ways did that set the stage for the travel experiences that we're having today? Nobody could predict that air travel would come back as quickly as it did, but it did. Right. You can't just take all the aircraft offline and lay people off or put them on furlough. And you can't just snap your fingers and bring all of that back. So that contributed to kind of some of the bad experiences that people were having. And, you know, we've also had some really weird weather events. You know, people say climate change isn't real. Mm, No, it is. (laughs) And the airlines are being affected by it. You mentioned that plane travel is being affected by these changes in weather patterns, but also plane travel is causing these changes in weather patterns because, you know, it takes a lot of fuel to fly and it does also contribute a lot to their changes in climate. I also imagine that that's going to continue. It's like the flights are going to continue and then also the unpredictable weather patterns are going to continue. And this lot forget fuel prices. (laughs) I mean, look at the roller coaster, you know, up and down and up and down. And, you know, you can't skimp on fuel. You can't, like, go to Costco to get the cheap gas when it comes to a plane. You just It doesn't work no, that way. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. And you also need to, like, you need enough gas to get where you got to go. You can't really, uh, you can't really, yeah, you need enough gas to get where you got to go. I want to look at one change that we're seeing is it seems like major airlines are leaving cities across the country. I mean, since the pandemic, over 50 U.S. cities saw at least one major airline discontinue service to their airports. And it seems like this is a trend that could continue. Why is this happening? And and how will this change the culture of air travel? Why it's happening, Brittany, is because during the pandemic, of course, all the air service was cut. We have a wave of pilots who are hitting close to the 65-year-old age limit for them to fly planes. And when the pandemic hit, there were offers to buy people out to retire early. And a surprising number of those pilots did retire. So it's like, okay, we've got to get more pilots. Where can we get those from? I covered the regional airline industry for 10 years, the little puddle jumpers. They're getting the pilots from those airlines. And then now those airlines are kind of stuck because they're like, well, where are we going to get pilots to fly? You know, so it's like you're squeezing that toothpaste and the cap is on tight. That toothpaste is going to come out. We can either do it the easy way or the very unpretty way. We're here talking because people are frankly upset about the state of air travel. And just to drive that point home, I've got some data. According to the Department of Transportation, travelers filed more than 26,000 formal complaints about U.S. airlines in the first five months of this year, 2023. That is more than double filed within that same time period in 2022. And that currently puts us on track to break the record set last year for travelers filing formal complaints. It makes me think about a certain inflection point where many people feel like things seem to go south for air travel a little 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 travel joke for you there, go south. Uh, <laughs> for those who are unfamiliar, can you lay out what happened in the airline industry in 1978? Ooh, in 1978, the airline industry was deregulated. Airline competition is getting tougher. Good. Continental thrives on it. Before then, the federal government, if you guys can believe this, the Civil Aeronautics Board ran 
the airline industry. So they told the airlines where they were going to fly, you know, helped them with the schedules, told them how much they could charge. So it was all smooth and easy. Mm. They were guaranteed their profits. I mean, they weren't making billions, but, you know, they were making a good living and people were getting paid. After deregulation, airlines could go wherever they like and charge whatever they like. Lawmakers thought this would be better for the customers because there would be more competition, which would lead to cheaper flights. But after deregulation, competition got so fierce. Airlines tried to drive each other out of business by lowering fares to impossibly competitive prices. Eventually, many established airlines found themselves on shaky ground. Some folded, some merged. Some merged and folded. And now, instead of having more competition... We have just four airlines controlling 80% of the market. And reporters like Binet say we're still feeling the unintended consequences today. That brings us to now where they're still trying to get their money, get their coins. Mm. So then that's when we started seeing the bag fees and the, um, the fees if you wanted to talk to an agent and no more food. And if you wanted some, you could buy a dry box of hummus with stale carrots or something. But, <laughs> but you know, there is still luxury out there if you're willing to pay for it. It's not going to be cheap. I did a story about the guy for United Airlines who chooses the wines for first class. He goes through 3,000 bottles of wine a year to pick out what's going to go on that plane. So mm. airlines are willing to spend money on the customers who are spending the big bucks to fly on them. If you're giving me my own little suite for $20,000, I wouldn't pay that. But I suppose I can see you're giving me something. But other than that, like I don't know if, if the experience is always worth the exorbitant price tag that's involved there. One of the things that I've noticed, especially within the past decade, especially, is it feels like we're paying extra for an average experience. But I don't know. I, I wonder if this is emblematic of, of something that we're seeing across lots of industries. Thinking about like VIP treatment at concerts um, where, you know, maybe back in the day, VIP treatment meant you could kind of go to certain backstage areas or you could meet the artists. But like I had VIP recently at a concert, but like it just meant that I got a poster. You know what I mean? It was like, <laughs> it was like, I got a poster. I didn't get any special treatment. I was in any special area. You know what I mean? I don't know. It feels like we're in this moment right now, not just with airline travel, but like across lots of industries, businesses or industries have conditioned convinced or required the customer to pay extra for what used to be part of the experience. That is absolutely true. And a lot of this has to do with airfares. And I mean, I know sometimes we all look at airfares and we say, oh, that's a high price, but we're actually paying less than, um, even including inflation, we're paying less than what we technically should be. So that's why <gasps> we have all these little fees and all these little annoyances and things. Wait, wait, okay, so we're paying less than we should be. According to the airlines, yes. Oh, okay. I was like, according yes. to who? The planes? But yes. <laughs> no, no, no. According to the airlines. Oh, okay. Yes. So this is the this is the airlines belief. And mm -hmm. I understand that there are fee I understand that we have to pay the salaries of the people obviously who are flying the planes and staffing the planes. But what's interesting to me is there have been all these strikes and threats of strikes from different airline employees this past year. And at the same time, 
airlines have shared that they are making record profits. So these employees are basically saying, you know, the money's not trickling down to them. So I'm wondering as a journalist, you know, and as a consumer, where is the money going? You well, I mean, I was say, you, your eyes, you, you raised your eyebrows, you looked around. I did. You, I no, did. no, no, I know, but I'm wondering. I'm like, I don't know. Where is some? Where, where's the money going? What's happening? Um, different places. I mean, a lot of airlines are in the um, process of upgrading their fleets. Mm-hmm. That's not cheap. Cost money, and, certainly. You know, mm-hmm. So you get, we're paying for that. You have landing fees and rental space at airports. Mm-hmm. You have amenities like lounges. You know, not everybody can get into a lounge anymore, but you know, those are perks yeah. for people with status, and those things don't pay for themselves. It's free, but it's not really free. Okay. Yes. Yes. These lounges that you can get access to with certain credit cards. It reminds me of some reporting I saw recently from the Atlantic magazine that now airlines make more money from mileage programs than from charging for flights. That is wild. Like, What do you make of that? And how do you think that has changed the passenger experience? Well, what I make of it is airlines need to make money. You know, they're beholden to shareholders Mm -hmm. in the end. I mean, they need to be fed. So um, it's just the nature of the business now. Hmm. 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 But the thing is, all these credit card point systems have been coming under scrutiny lately because to make these point systems profitable, the people who don't have cards, you know, they pay full price or even extra in order to subsidize these rewards programs with people who are participating in them. And, you know, these rewards program perks include things like, you know, hanging out in premium airport lounges, upgrading flights or avoiding baggage fees. So even though people with the cards are sometimes flying more frequently, to me, it looks like the people in the back of the plane are kind of helping them live that lifestyle. And it feels like a pretty prickly class situation. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah. I do. What, what, talk to me about that. There is this kind of have versus have nots. And, mm. you know, you've got people who fly regularly and their company is picking up the tab. And technically it's not their money, but they're benefiting from that better experience. Mm. Whereas, you know, people who travel maybe two or three times a year, they're not getting the same thing. And I mean, I don't want to say that airlines don't care about them, but the people in the front are the ones that are paying the bucks so that the people in the back can have cheaper fares. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, yeah, that is not exactly how I thought of it before, but that is, you do raise a very interesting point. I've just been trying to think about how to frame up how to think about the airline industry. I think about it as like a privately owned form of public transportation, like not mass transit, like the MTA or the WMATA or the MARTA or something like that. But at the same time, we can't ignore the fact that even though these are private companies, that the airline industry has leaned on government assistance for survival. So if flying is not really this luxury, highly exclusive experience it once was, but it's also not mass public transit like the city bus. Although I have heard some people joke that an airplane ain't nothing but a city bus in the sky. (laughs) Yep. How do you think of the airline industry? In the end, the airline industry is a business. 
they have to watch that bottom line. Back in the regulation days, yes, they were a form of public transportation, but not anymore. They're going to make sure you get from point A to point B safely. That's that's the emphasis. You know, they want butts and seats. I just don't see any of that changing anytime soon. Vinay, thank you so much for coming on the show and unpacking all this airline drama with me. I appreciate it so much. Thank you for having me. I am a big fan of the show, so it's such an honor to be on here chatting with you. That was Benet Wilson, veteran aviation journalist. I'm still stuck on this idea that for many Americans, flying is like taking a city bus in the sky, but with Uber surge pricing, and no one's all that happy about it. The government once regulated the airline industry, and while I myself am not suggesting re-regulation, I mean, that is several thousand miles above my pay grade, I do wonder what it would look like if we treated flying commercially the way we treat the MTA, or maybe instead the way we think about the Metro North. It's clean and quiet enough for a public space. It gets us where we got to go, but we don't have to turn our pockets inside out. Just a little food for thought. Coming up, we've got a holiday-themed game that'll warm the heart of even the coldest Scrooge. From your car radio to your smart speaker, NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Next, we're talking about a defining holiday staple, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. You know the story, miserly Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by the three ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future, who all teach him the spirit of generosity and repentance. It was an instant classic when it was written by Charles Dickens in 1843. And over the past 180 years since, it's been adapted hundreds of times into radio plays, television, film, theater, dance, and more. With its themes of mortality, loneliness, and the power of love, it's pretty easy to see why it's got staying power. But that's not the only reason. There are a reasonable number of elements in this story that you can adapt and adapt and adapt in whatever way you like. That's NPR pop culture correspondent Linda Holmes. You've already got the plot and you just kind of hang your pieces on it. And it is a relatively simple way to put together something that is in some ways new. It's a gorgeous story. And that's NPR film critic Bob Mandello. That said, one of the reasons it has staying power these days, and this is a curmudgeonly approach, is that it makes a lot of money for theater companies and for ballet companies and for all kinds of other places. This is the kind of staple that everybody wants to go to. Bob and Linda, while brilliant and a joy to be around, are joining me today because I really want to help everyone understand how many versions of A Christmas Carol there truly are. And to do that, we're going to play a little game. Spot the Scrooge. I'm intrigued. I like it. I'm just I'm just preparing. You're mentally. preparing. I don't mm-hmm. uh, Linda, I can see on your face like you're like, all right, you're trying to recall every interpretation. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, so how the game is gonna work is I'm gonna tell you about different versions of a Christmas carol, but one of them is not real. You have to tell me which one actually happened. And there are no buzzers. 
You just have to shout out the answer. And the person who gets the most answers right wins. And if you're wondering about the prize, it's just going to be Christmas cheer and bragging rights. I'll hold it over Bob's head for a million years if I win. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Are you both ready to play the game? Ready. Ready. Number one. Who played Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, the musical? Kelsey Grammer or Alec Baldwin? Kelsey Kelsey Grammer. Grammer. Okay. (laughs) Not only did you both get that right, at least in... From my point of view, you both got it at the exact same time. It was a tie. God bless us, everyone. Ooh, I'm shook. I'm shook. I'm shook. Mm -hmm, Okay. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow. Okay, so going forward, you each have one point. But I just want to offer a little fun fact. Alec Baldwin, who indeed did not play Ebenezer Scrooge in Christmas Carol the Musical, his 30 Rock co-star, Jane Krakowski, was Ghost of Christmas Past in A Christmas Carol the Musical starring Kelsey Grammer. I recognize you. Aren't you the... No, sir. I'm the ghost of Christmas past. That checks out. Yes. Which also kind of... Yeah, it, it seems like a role that her that her character, Jenna Maroney, on 30 Rock <laughs> might For play. sure. I can believe it. I believe it. I love it. <laughs> Coming out of our first question, we got a tie. Next question. Was there a Hello Kitty or All Dogs Go to Heaven version of A Christmas Carol? All Dogs Go to Heaven. I have absolutely no idea. Bah, humbug. Linda, you're absolutely right. It was All Dogs Go to Heaven. And in my personal opinion, Hello Kitty version couldn't exist because she doesn't have a mouth. So how's my girl going to sing? <laughs> Fair. How's she going to sing? But another fun fact, Hello Kitty did have a little evil Christmas character named Scrooge Nip. I'm just going to let that one go. <laughs> I'm with you. I went out trying to have a snowball fight and they hit me right in the scrooge right in the scrooge (laughs) oh goodness oh my god and you said you were gonna let it go i'm sorry it's irresistible yeah i was and then i didn't all right going into our next round that gives linda two points bob one bob you're trailing a little bit but maybe you'll catch up number three was there a sesame street or muppets version of a Christmas Carol. Definitely Muppets. Muppets. Technically, you are both right, but you did not get the answer right. It was a trick question. Oh, no. They were both. Of course. Yeah. So technically, oh, you are that both makes sense. correct, but huh. you did not get no points. No points for this one. Bah, humbug. Uh, I was misled about the rules. I was led to believe one was real and one was not real. <laughs> I've been bamboozled. Fair, fair. I will have you bring that up with our games board. Absolutely. That seems reasonable. Yes. I will be filing an appeal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're winning. <laughs> Bob. <laughs> In fairness. <laughs> In fairness, it's true. true. It's funny. I'm up at Christmas Carol is now becoming known as one of Michael Caine's best performances. Sir Michael Caine told the producer and director Brian Henson of the film... I'm going to play this movie like I'm working with the Royal Shakespeare Company. I will never wink. I will never do anything Muppety. I am going to play Scrooge as if it is an utterly dramatic role and there are no puppets around me. Ebenezer Scrooge. Oh, please, spirit, no. Hear me. I'm not the man I was. Man's an artist. The man's an artist. The man's an artist. Coming out of this round, we have got Linda holding steady at Two points, Bob with one. All right, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens in this next round. 
Has Vanessa Williams or Robin Williams played Scrooge? Vanessa Williams. Linda is right again. I had no idea that Vanessa had done that. It just sounds like something they would do. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, that's fair. I don't think I've seen it, but it sounds like something they would do. And I think I would know if Robin Williams had. Yeah, that's true. I will tell you what. Linda, you're absolutely right. Vanessa Williams did play Ebony Scrooge. Yeah. Oh, nice. In A Diva's Christmas Carol, which was a VH1 original Mm -hmm. Christmas movie from, I believe, the year 2000. I just want to say, I have seen this movie no fewer (laughs) than like 50 or 60 times. (laughs) Honestly. Art? You'd call it art? Art. I would suggest, like, if you can find it on streaming or something like that, go back and watch it. It absolutely holds up. Noted. I can't believe I was able to recommend the two of you something. Look at that. I'm learning a great deal from this uh, this particular contest, <laughs> <laughs> including that I don't know anything. <laughs> this is like... Oh, my gosh. All right. We are going into our final round. Okay. Right now, we got Linda at three, Bob at one. Let's go ahead and play this last one for three points. Give me a chance. I think it's very generous. Winner take all. Very okay. generous. All right. Is there a Bratz version, as in the Bratz dolls, is there a Bratz version of A Christmas Carol or a Barbie version? I'm going to guess Bratz. I'll guess Barbie then. In a stunning upset, Bob. <laughs> hey, come from behind. right. Coming from behind the dark horse. I, I, that was a strategic guess, as you may have noticed. <laughs> Beautiful in the, job. In the year of Barbie, uh, I think it is reasonable to uh, expect that, though. I mean, for sure. Know. For sure. Always go bet on Barbie. Yeah. Bet on Barbie. Bet on Barbie. All right. That puts the final <laughs> score. Bob Mandela, four points with that last one that clinched it. And Linda Holmes, a valiant effort. Excellent work done today. Much smarter. All of the expertise on display. Congratulations, with Bob. With three points. Linda, you should still write into our games board. Yes, I, now now it's perfectly legitimate for you to appeal this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> perfectly mm-hmm. legitimate for you to appeal this. I'll begin writing my briefs. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on here today and playing Spot the Scrooge. So much fun. So much fun. It was great. And happy Christmas. Thanks again to NPR film critic Bob Mandello and NPR pop culture correspondent Linda Holmes. You can find their work at NPR.org. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hello, this is Anne-Marie. And I'm wondering, as the holidays sneak up on us, if there are any rules around gift giving. And also, if there's any guidelines around gift receiving and thank yous and how to reciprocate properly. I would love to hear any of your thoughts on this. Thank you. Anne-Marie. Thank you so much for calling in with this question. This is something that I myself am not exactly the best at. I'm just going to be honest with you all. But we're going to get out of this mess as a group. So number one, as far as giving gifts, I would say the best gift you can get somebody is something they actually want. So ask them what they want. Another thing is, is as a gift receiver, tell people what you want. 
And don't worry about what they're going to think about it. Don't worry if it seems utilitarian. This is a gift for you. So if you're like, I want a new hammer, let them know you want a new hammer. Put that on the list. And also give people a variety of price points to work with. The other thing I say for gift givers, don't gift people a responsibility. Okay? You should not surprise people with pets or plants that they did not ask for. Nobody wants a job as a gift. I have a little bit of a shake the table idea, but depending on your relationship with this person, baby, nobody has ever cried from getting a crisp $20 bill. $100 bill if you're nasty, okay? So consider money or a gift card. One of my favorite gifts that I receive is a Cheesecake Factory gift card from my mother-in-law. With regard to the whole receiving thing and the thank yous, not my strongest suit. I'm working on it for 2024. Cards can be lovely, but I think that often a a text message or a phone call or an email just to say, hey, I got this. I loved it. Or thank you so much for thinking of me. I'm wearing it right now. That will usually suffice. So happy holidays. I hope you and yours enjoy the gifts that you get and good luck with the gifts that you receive. Honestly, for me, it's nice to receive something that I did not pay for. If you have a thought or question about pop culture, send us a voice memo at ibam at npr.org. That's I-B-A-M at npr.org. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Alexis Williams, Liam McBain, Corey Antonio Rose. This episode was edited by Jessica Plachek, Bilal Qureshi. Engineering support came from Robert Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. All right, that's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top 10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Dana-Farber scientists laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, new drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. (laughs) Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.